This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Well, hello, my Let's Keep It Real people. I am so excited about this. I've been looking forward to it. I basically just searched for him all over the internet, and I couldn't wait to have him on, and it's perfect time. Before I bring on my awesome, inspiring guest, Don Mann, let me just tell you a little bit about him. Yes, he's an ex-Navy SEAL. He's also the author of 20 books. He's competed in over 1,000 endurance competitions, including two Ironman triathlons in one day. And was rescued from Mount Everest after a near-death injury. Oh my! Welcome. I'm so happy you're on here, Don. I'm. I can't wait to hear all about your journey. Oh, Sandy, thank you for having me as a guest. I'm. I'm very happy to be here with you. So we're going to just jump right into it with one of the biggest questions that I got from my um, listeners, and that is, why did you want to become a Navy SEAL? It seems so overwhelming and so difficult that was the biggest question i kept getting asking why a navy seal well you know sandy i i kind of turned that around a bit i wonder why a guy wouldn't want to be a navy seal i mean when i first (laughs) went and i saw that video right after boot camp and i saw what these guys do and they run down the beaches they do these long runs they do a lot of pull-ups and sit-ups and push-ups And they go all over the world and they shoot things and they blow things up and they skydive and they dive. When I saw that video, there was nothing in this world I wanted more than that. And I I don't understand why every person wouldn't want that, you know, male or, you know, not so much female, but especially the males. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, are there, I I should know this, but um, how many uh, female Navy SEALs are there? Well, you know, Sandy, right now there aren't any female Navy SEALs. And ah. there, there has been a push for about 20 years now. It's just coming out in the news now that women want to be SEALs. But I ran a program for the Navy SEALs called the SEAL Adventure Challenge. And I worked directly under our admiral. And we were getting all these guys who wanted to be SEALs and come through my program before they went through BUDS training, SEAL training. And then we started. Yeah. I started getting some phone calls from some women. And I called the admiral in panic. I said, Admiral, what do I do? And this was when G.I. Jane with Demi Moore came out and she was a Navy SEAL. Oh. And, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. and I said, Admiral, what do I do? He said, well, you know, Don, you just have your program. You can let females in, let males in. Uh, do whatever you want with it. It's okay for us if you have Navy, you know, women who want to become SEALs. I have to tell you, some of the women we've had come through the Navy SEAL program that I put on, the SEAL Adventure Challenge, were some of the best yeah. people we had in the program. Uh, so, wow. but we don't have seals uh, who are women right now. So we just don't have that in the in the seal teams right now. Well, you know, uh, I I've owned health clubs my whole life, and I had a group of Navy seals come in. I don't even know what it was a workout program that you know they were promoting, and I was like. <laughs> I would want to, like you, why wouldn't I want to be a Navy SEAL? I thought that was the most exciting thing. But um, it wasn't because I was the best at everything. And I, and I was listening to some of your stuff and it reminded me of me. I, I don't give up. But it wasn't like I was the fastest or the strongest. I mean, I'm just going to like, 
you're going to have to carry me out, you know, before I quit. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's basically it. That's basically the attitude you have to have. And when you show up at the door and you go, what we call buds, basic underwater demolition seal training, when you get accepted and you show up at the door on day one of seal training, what we call buds, I believe my own opinion is you have to not have any backup plans. Like this is it. I am committing everything to this program. I will do whatever they make me do. And if it's too hard, I'll simply pass out on you because you can't be laying there in the grinder while they're spraying cold water on you and doing thousands of push-ups and sit-ups a day and swimming in that cold water. Some t- at some point, you'll think, if you had a backup plan, hey, maybe it would be better to be a pilot. Maybe I should go be an accountant or a doctor or something else. Because, yeah, But yeah. It, you, you just can't have that in you. you. You have to say, I'm here and I am not going to quit. Bring it on. I welcome the pain. Bring it on. If there's too much pain, I'm simply just going to pass out on you, and I'll get my break that I needed. And, and that's that's an easy way to look at it. And may, it made going through buds easier than if I if I personally didn't have that attitude. Now, did you always have that strong will, even as a kid? You know, I, I think so. I think it started for me in maybe the seventh grade, and um, and I love music. I still love music so much. And I love the military. I love pushing myself. And I knew in seventh grade I was going to go in one direction or the other, physical or musically. And it's a good thing I went physical because I don't have any talent at all. Although I love listening to music, but I certainly can't sing or play an instrument. So, But I knew then. And then at that point in seventh grade, I did every every day I did something to make myself stronger. And and I didn't know about the seals at the time, but I knew it was going to be something exciting and physical. Yeah. Well, what about your parents? Were they, was anybody in the military? You know, my father, uh, my mother was not, her family was not involved in the military. And my father, uh, they both passed away now, but uh, my father was the youngest of four. And when we were attacked in World War II by the Japanese in Pearl Harbor, my father, his two brothers and his sister, my two uncles, my aunt, they all joined the military that day. And my father dropped out of high school, and he, they were all very patriotic. My grandmother's door had four stars on it because they were all gone. Wow. And um, at a young age, without trying to instill patriotism in us, I don't think he did it purposely, but when there was yeah. a news report that military members were killed, he would cry saying the prayers at night. And he was very, very patriotic. In his later years in life, when he retired, he devoted all his time and energy to disabled veterans and veterans of foreign wars. And he just loved our country. And he always said, God, country, family. That's how it is. God, But that was the greatest generation. Things are different now, but that's what he instilled into me back then. Yeah. yeah. It was a different time, wasn't it? It, it, it was, I think, a better time in so many ways because yeah. it was like John F. Kennedy said, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And it seems that that's turned around now. It seems like, what can you do for me? What can my country do for me? What entitlements can I get? Rather than what can I do to make things better? I I, I don't mean to sound negative, but I kind of see that more now than decades ago. Well, it's the same thing when people always say, oh, I wish people were like this. I wish people were like this. How are you showing up? You know, what are you doing? You know, what are you putting out in the world? What are you doing for your community? I think that's the most important thing. 
Um, and as far as like you being in the, the Navy SEALs, it just sounds to me as if it was a no brainer. Like you're saying, I can't imagine somebody not wanting to do that. <laughs> I, I, in my opinion, it, it made my life. It saved my life. I yeah. was uh, just a reckless kid going in all types of directions, just doing things for fun. That gave me focus. It, it put my energy all in one direction, a good direction. And seeing that video that one day, and then serving SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 6, and then supporting the SEALs ever since and helping people become SEALs ever since, I don't know what would have become of my life. I know one thing. There wouldn't have been anything that would have happened to me that where I was more passionate about than the SEALs, than what I, what I yeah. found back then when I was a teenager. Yeah. So how many people make it like that try out? Like how many try out every year and how many people get through? Oh boy. You'll hear different numbers on that. So, um, I know. because you know, we, we recruit people from colleges and things like that. So what will happen? The initial recruitment through all the colleges and all the people out of high schools and all the people, the thousands and thousands of people who since bin Laden was killed. Now there's thousands of people before it was hard to get people in the SEAL teams, but the, all the movies and the books oh. and everything, uh, since Bin Laden was killed, the line at the door is much, much longer now than it ever was to be a SEAL. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you know Chris Kyle's movie and Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor, uh, American Sniper, those movies yeah. glamorized being a SEAL to some extent, I think. And, um, I didn't even think about that. It did. It really did. And that's when all the movies came out right after these two wars that we've just been involved with for these uh, couple decades now. But um, yeah. it's really made the excitement. Everybody, and it's always in the news. Seals are always in the news now, good and bad, I know. But yeah. um, it's really captured the attention of young guys. And I think for in a good way because now they they see – there's a reason to work out and to get strong. And there's a reason to try to get yourself in a, in a uh, physical fitness condition where you'll be competing against thousands of other people who might want that one spot you're in. But to answer your question, there's thousands of people for every class that want to get in. Once the class finally forms up, there'll be a couple of hundred people looking for seats yeah. in that one class maybe 175 to 225, somewhere in that range. But seven months later, six and a half months later, there'll probably be 20 to 25 people who graduate per class. And there's yeah. usually five classes a year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it. I guess you go in thinking, like you said, you, it's all glamorized, but that some people don't realize how tough it really is. Oh, you know, and I spend many, many nights at home answering phone calls and talking to people's brothers and fathers and uncles and, and all these people who yeah. want to be SEALs. And um, I could tell within a few minutes, you know, if they're going to make it or not, basically, at this point. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I've really narrowed down my, my long, long-winded conversations with these people down to four points. And I love it when I talk to the 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. When I talked to a 28 to 29 year old, my last call was two nights ago. He's 28. He said, yeah, I'm thinking about being a SEAL. I said, well, what are your run times like? Well, I don't really run yet. I said, are you swimming? Okay. No, I don't really have a place to swim. How many push-ups can you do? I can do about 80 in two minutes. And I, and I told him, I said, I have to be 
frank and honest with you, you have a very slight chance of making it. For one, you're older. You're not running. You're not swimming. And you know that's a big part of it. You should be able to do 120 yeah. push-ups and 120 sit-ups in two minutes. And it doesn't sound like you're committed. And if you do get accepted somehow, and if you're not fully committed, I pretty much can guarantee you're not going to make it. So that's one extent. But then I'll get 12, 13, 14-year-olds who might call and they'll say, I want to be a SEAL more than anything or a Marine more than anything. And um, I'll talk to them about their times and their ambitions and all. I talked to one young guy and he said, my goal is to be the Commandant of the Marine Corps, which is the highest ranking person in the Marine Corps. And he said, I can do 200 push-ups at a time. He just goes off and on and he's fit and he's solid rock, straight A's. Yeah. And um, that's that's who the military wants nowadays. And yeah. um, But I do have it narrowed down to four things. And I love sharing these with young people. I'll say, every day, wake up and just do something that makes you a stronger person. Don't expect that plan on a silver platter. You figure out what that something is. Maybe it's CrossFit. Maybe it's Orange Theory. Maybe it's the gym. Maybe it's your home workouts. Whatever it is, every day, you figure it out, but do something to make you stronger. And every day, do something to make you faster. Do wind sprints down the beach. Do, do track workouts. Maybe uh, do those sit-ups faster. But every day, get faster. Do something to make yourself faster. And then every day, do something to make you smarter. Read. Watch the news. Watch what SEALs are doing around the world. Follow their history. Learn to shoot. Learn weapons. Learn how to skydive. Go take a skydiving course. Go learn to dive. Take a diving course. And there's so many things you can do now. So if you ever get accepted, you'll be a lot better participant. And most importantly, the fourth thing is every day do something good for somebody. Do something good for your parents, your uncle, your aunt, your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your teacher. Just do something good for somebody because in the end, if you get to a SEAL team, everybody's going to be fast. Everyone's going to be strong. Everyone's going to be intelligent and smart. But what's most importantly at that point is that you're a good teammate because they're going to rely on you rely upon their lives for you and you're going to depend on them for your life as well so just stronger faster smarter and do something good for somebody and and that's what i think young people need to hear now if they want to be a police officer maybe a seal or a marine or an army person or something like that it's what my easy way of explaining it now yeah well let me tell you most of them would be good for anyone as far as being stronger smarter and doing something for anyone every day you know yeah, because, you know, if you learn that when you're 13 or 14, which I did not learn at that age, and you go to selection and now you're 18, 19, 20, and if you start that program, that philosophy out at your younger ages, you very well could be the smartest, strongest, fastest person there and the person everybody yeah. wants on the team because you're such a good teammate. You're just used to doing good for people. Yeah, I love that. I'm writing it down. I have a nephew. He's He really... That's his goal. And he, he's like the kid, you know, you said he's been doing it young, getting straight A's, helping people and all that. So I really hope he makes it. But he eats, lives, and breathes it. And the rest of the family can't figure it out. Like, why do you want this? He's just always wanted it, you know, just always. That's fantastic. That's who we're looking for. That's what the SEAL teams are looking for, people like that. Yeah. All right, so I have to ask you, where'd the author come in? I mean, we're looking here that you wrote 20 books. When did you start writing, Don? Okay, I have to um, 
go a little bit back on this on the history. I was a I wasn't a good student. I was what I would tell every kid not to do. I would say pay attention in school, <laughs> and I didn't. I I got myself far behind because I didn't. I would have been much more successful if I had paid attention in school. So I didn't pay attention. I went to school to have fun, and um, but you know. I, I wasn't. I didn't learn a lot of writing skills, or English skills, or reading skills, or anything like that. But I did start developing a mindset where, if you set a goal, what I call the macro goal, if you set a big goal, you could set a bunch of little micro goals to work up that big goal. So I had a goal at one point to write an article for Navy Times, and I was so excited about this. And my micro goals were to write paragraphs, write little letters. And then eventually write an article on on workout programs for the Navy Times. I did that for a while. And I was so excited when it first got published, the macro goal was met. Then I brought that macro goal down to a micro goal. And I was thinking, okay, check. I did that. The next thing, I'm going to do is a series of workout fitness articles. And that happened. I brought that macro goal down to a micro goal. I was thinking, okay, now I'm going to write a book. I'm really going to write a book. And people who know me, they said, there's no way you're going to sit behind a computer and write a book. You didn't even yeah, read, yeah. you haven't even read many books, um, you know, my earlier guy <laughs> in my life. And so um, I was asked by a new, uh, actually a politician from Virginia. His name's Quinton Kidd. He said, Don, you are compete in adventure racing at the highest level. You teach people to do adventure racing through your adventure racing camp. And you produce more adventure races than anybody in the world. Why don't you write a book? I said, Quentin, I don't want to write a book. So anyways, that's what prompted me to write a book. He said, well, just do it on tape. So I recorded everything, and he got someone to type it all up. And that was the first book of adventure racing. And I was thinking, that wasn't so bad. That wasn't so bad. I had it very, very easy because all I had to do was talk. And then I was, right Ah. after the wars started, I was doing a lot of – teaching around the world, shooting and tactics and taking care of the prime minister or the kings or the presidents, whoever they might be. And I'd go all over the world. I've gathered together a lot of information on weapons. And my boss came up to me and said, Don, you got to write a book. I said, Jimmy, last thing I want to do is write another book. I don't want to be behind that computer. He said, you got a ton of information. Why don't you write a book? So I put it together in chapters and then I ended up writing a shooting book, which was, you know, it was a well-regarded shooting book. And then, then I figured, well, why don't I write a series? I took the book down to the micro level. Then I put the macro level. I'll write a series of books. And that happened. Eight books later, I had an eight-book series. And then it just started ha- – you know, then I, I was looking for ideas. You know, yeah. I think I could come up with this idea, which kind of interesting, Sandy. You know, the last book I wrote was about a virus, and this was a year ago. That no. And this comes from the news that the Arabs were trying to develop a virus that only um, attached to the DNA of a Jewish person. And it's misconstrued a little bit. You can Google it. You can see how it worked, vice versa. The Jews doing it against the okay. Arabs, Arabs against the Jews. But then I started thinking that would be a fascinating story. And I put together a story that people were trying to weaponize a virus to attack a certain type of person. So when this, this coronavirus hit us, 
my first thought was, boy, I hope that's not somebody trying to weaponize a virus because it's more powerful than planes oh going goodness. into a building. But your latest book is Facing Your Fears, which is really, you know, coping with fear and anxiety. And like I was telling you before we went on, I think a lot of people's fears and anxieties have gone off the roof right now. They're either young people and they're in an apartment alone, which I think would be really tough, or they're single or divorced and if kids are grown and they are in a, a home by themselves. And I think that can bring out, you know, in the best of us, fear and anxiety. Yeah, I agree. And I, I have an uncle. I have an uncle who's in that. He's in his nineties, and he's in a nursing home, and he's been in lockdown for five weeks, and six people have the virus around him, and uh, and he he's he's scared to death. But he he's looking at it as we're gonna beat this. I'm okay right now. I feel fine. Yeah. But people like that. Um, that's I feel terrible for them. I, I really do. You know, um, my parents are both gone, like I mentioned, but. I would hate for people at that age, my parents I'm talking about, to have to be that scared right now. But, yeah. you know, it's not yeah. the first time this world has faced it and we've beat it before. And and now we're smarter, more intelligent people than before. I, I don't see why we, we wouldn't beat it. So let's talk about, like, your, your last book that you wrote, Facing Your Fears and Coping with Fear and Anxiety. You, the first thing you said to do is identify your fears. Let's just go so, through some points, like, because some people, you know, I think could really benefit from hearing these points. Okay, well, if I could bring it back to maybe the SEAL classes we were talking about earlier. Okay. Best way for a small team to operate if, if someone came in and said, hey, I know we got to jump tonight. I know we have a, sky, a night skydive tonight. I have to tell you, you guys know this, but I'm afraid of night jumping. I have a, I, I'm worried about tonight. I just don't feel confident. But when somebody comes out and puts it on the table like, this is my fear. I've identified it, and now this is it. I mean, we have seen that a lot. Uh, rock climbing. Sometimes you'll go rock climbing and mountain climbing, and people are scared to death. But in an airplane, they they don't have any fears at all of jumping out and doing a skydive, and vice versa. The skydivers might be scared to death to go do some high rock climbing or cliff climbing or cliff jumping or something. But I think it's important to at least on an individual individual basis to figure out what are you afraid of. What is it that you are afraid of? We all have fears. Everybody has fears. And if you can identify those, it's going to bring you peace, I think, at one point, one level. But also, if you're part of a team, a part of a workforce, even a family, you know, this is these are my fears. Please help me out in these times because I'm fearful of flying low terrain over the desert. I'm fearful of driving in the backseat of a car, you know, when it's um, the driver's going really fast in a, a third world country. Whatever your fears are, we all have them. I have two fears. I have a fear that I'm going to uh, drown underneath the ship when I can't get air because that almost happened to me once. And I'm also, for some reason, I'm a fear, I have a fear of choking on a fish or a chicken bone. A good friend of mine choked on a chicken bone. Yeah. For some reason, those are my only two fears but I know I have those two fears, and um, and I'm okay. Well, the one with them. you might deal with a little bit more than being stuck under, you know, the boat right now, right? It's the ones more in your everyday life. Yep, yep. But anytime I go in the water and I go to swim under a pier or something, I and and oh. I've done this quite a bit since. 
I almost drowned under that ship one night. Um, I always think I'm going to get stuck under here. It's just a fear that I haven't been able to get rid of yet. But, you know, we did have a high-level ranking member in the U.S. military. and He had three fears. He was afraid of rats, he's afraid of heights, and he's afraid of lightning. What he did, he killed a rat and put it on a fire and, and, and ate it. He sat up in a tree late at night in a, in a high, high tree where you're scared to death, and he went outdoors during a thunderstorm. He identified his three fears at an early age and looked at them head on, confronted them, and he beat all three fears. And that's only possible if you can identify your fears and see them and clearly know this is what I'm afraid of and not be afraid to tell your coworkers or your teammates or whoever it might be that, these are my fears. I'm afraid of parking yeah. in this parking lot at night. I mean, do you have a fear? Okay, so now when I walk out in that parking lot, if it's a female, I have a, a little bit of mace in one hand. I have my phone in this hand. And I have the shortest distance to take from this elevator or these steps to my car. And she's confronted her fears. And she's uh, looking at it, you know, the logistics of how to, how to beat these fears and how to, how to protect herself. So the things that she think might happen, at least now she's got a plan to protect herself. And and I, that wouldn't happen if you can't identify him initially. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you mean by embrace your fears? Do you mean by hit it head on? Yeah, I think so. I really think so. It's better than ignoring your fears or just walking away from them. Because whatever the fear might be, if it's afraid of heights, you know, I was just out with some New York guys out the Grand Canyon and we were on this ledge and one of the guys was really afraid to be on that ledge. And we were going to hike down the bottom and hike back up the other side. And there were places where he was going to have to be out in the middle of nowhere without help and he can't turn around and back off and have to go back five or six hours. He had to be on these ledges without any protection and a lot of exposure and if he fell he would disappear basically and i believe when we got finished with that hike and we just talked along the way i don't think he's afraid of heights anymore and i think for the rest of his life that's going to be helpful to him yeah well you know it's funny that you mentioned this he's going to kill me though my husband i didn't know he had a fear of heights and on our honeymoon i had all these i mountain bike so I had all these mountain bike trips planned during it. We did a balloon ride and we did the Grand Canyon. And I saw him like breathing heavy. I'm like, what's going on? But after that, you know, he didn't want to tell me. He was afraid to tell me. He didn't want to do it because he afraid of heights. But after that, he felt a lot better, you know? I mean, because we definitely hit it all head on, like all the things involved heights because I like heights. But it's, he said it helped him afterwards. Oh, yeah, I think he did it, and he, he beat his fears without even trying to because of you. <laughs> he, just did, he just didn't want to fess up to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah so men have a problem have with that, by the, the way. It's hard for a guy to say to a woman, hey, I'm afraid of this. You can't. Men aren't supposed to yeah, be like I that, right? <laughs> Especially when you're just married. You know? <laughs> All right, so this leads me to my second question. This young man wants to know, what was your scariest moment ever? when being a Navy SEAL? Like if you could tell us a story about something that happened to you. Okay. Um, so every day, I'd like to say most days you're scared about something. You know, at the end okay. of every day, we're pretty much 
go out and have a drink, would toast each other, said, here's for cheating death once again. So every day oh, wow. you're a little worried about something. But there was a time once when I was, I was captured by the enemy and um, we were in a hole in enemy territory hidden for three days in a desert and we had camouflage, camouflage netting over our heads and we were as sick as can be. There were only four of us there and we had eaten uh, some snakes, some poisonous snakes. We pulled out the venom sacks and ate those, some frogs. You just kill them by hitting the the heads on your boot, and then peeling the skin back and eating them raw. And all four of us had food poisoning. So we're in this hole for four days with food poisoning, for three days with food poisoning. And we all had diarrhea and we're all vomiting and you couldn't leave the hole to use the bathroom. And um, we're as sick as can be. And at high tide, the hole filled with water. And so we basically were living in our sewage for three days. And uh, we're sick as can be. We had goggles on. We had our noses and ears filled with sand because of the sandstorms on the desert floor. We were underneath in a hole and had camouflage netting over our heads, but the sand was still coming in. And we had to do a reconnaissance. And that means we were taking photos of this airstrip and the planes coming and going. And we're taking photos and getting intelligence from the shipyard and see what boat traffic was coming in and out. And we had to do that for three days. And uh, the four of us were in that hole as sick as can be. I was a medic. I got IVs in the other three guys, and that helped a little bit. And they tried getting an IV in me, and uh, basically I just had about 30 punctures in my arm and got all infected because they couldn't get a needle in me, a catheter. So anyways, on our third day, living in our sewage for three days, which nobody complained about either, by the way. I was so proud to be with those guys. Nobody complained that it was too hard. This is not what we signed up for. I should have been a pilot or anything like that. Nobody complained. But on our third day, somebody was walking toward us and he saw something that was unnatural on the floor of the desert and was our camouflage netting. And four guys underneath that with weapons in the hands and goggles and long hair and beards pointed at him. And he ran off and he got 14 other guys to come get us. And we tried to get out of there as quickly as we could. Um, 14 guys were basically kids with AK-47 submachine guns in their hands mm. with their fingers on the triggers and they circled around us and they were scared to death and I would be lying if I said we weren't scared but I also yeah. know I think they were way more scared than we were all we had were our shovels trying to get the other all our gear unburied and trying to get out of there trying to get our boat it was a parachute jump we had to jump in and we're trying to un, you know get the sand off the boat and try to get that inflated and get the motor on it so we can get out of there before the uh, his reinforcements came in. But they came in and they circled around us. And one of them who could speak broken English said, down, down, down. We shoot you in the backs for trespassing. And this was in broken English. And yeah. we said, no, no, we're going home. We're going back in that boat and we're going back home. It was in broken English. So they held us at gunpoint overnight where I was afraid was that one of them might just have an accidental discharge because all the fingers were on the triggers and all the weapons were pointed to our chest or our heads. And I was thinking accidentally they might shoot us, but they wouldn't do it on purpose because if they did, we were in the middle of a circle, they would shoot right through us into one another. But then realizing afterwards that was crazy for me to think like that because they don't think like that. But um, So anyways, they held us at gunpoint overnight and they 
An interpreter came down. He said, down, lay down in the ground. We shoot you in the backs for trespassing. We said, no, we're not doing that. They let us go after going back and forth. They let us go. We 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 weren't afraid that we were going to die because we all had the mentality, we're going to beat this. We're going to beat it. Huh. We had the positive mentality, we're going to beat it. We went out to sea for another night as sick as can be. Went around the um, the boat side in that little peninsula we're on, and we finished our mission and got out alive in a successful mission. Nobody ever, ever said they were afraid. Nobody showed any fear. But I think wow. that was, you know, I had some um, some parachute jumps, two of them, where the parachute didn't open in the middle of the night. and uh, But there was a sense of fear there. But overwhelmingly, beyond the fear, there was a sense that I know what to do. I'm going to cut away. I'll get rid of this parachute, and I'm going to pull my reserve. There was a plan to confront, to deal with the fear. And um, yeah. so I can't say that I was ever really, really afraid of anything because I sort of somehow had a plan how I was going to get out of it somehow. And I don't want to sound like I'm a super brave person or anything like that, or I don't care about life because I do. I love life. Yeah. But I can yeah. I can yeah. confront the fear and have a plan to defeat it. In most cases, I can't think of a case where that wasn't the case actually well what about the mount everest where it says you know when was that you okay. were rescued after near death that was just three years ago and um, i was so excited to go to everest i've wanted to climb everest you know for 20 plus years i was mm -hmm. fit i was strong i climbed 30 mountains getting ready for it um i went out there the whole team said don you're the oldest one of us here but you're not having any problems at all. What is going on? You look so fit. How's this going to happen? I, I, was, I felt so good. I felt really, really good. And yeah. we had the strongest yeah. team you can imagine. Andre Dorje Sherpa, the most famous Sherpa in the world, who is in all the Everest movies and in John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. He's the hero of the book yeah. and the movies. He was our Sherpa. And we had Lydia Bradley on the team, the first woman to climb Everest without oxygen. We had such a good team. There are only 11 of us on the team. But wow. after about three weeks or so, people started getting sick and hurt, and we started losing people one by one by one. But I was still feeling okay. But when you get up to the... What do you mean losing people? Like, oh, I don't mean dying. I don't mean dying. Just uh, oh. being medevaced out for high-altitude pulmonary edema okay. or cerebral edema. Or, or okay. we didn't have any frostbite issues, but um, just pure exhaustion. Uh, no, no serious injuries or anything. Just those okay. type of altitude sicknesses. And uh, so we got up to the Kumbu Icefall, which is the most dangerous part on Everest, where that's where all the Sherpas set up the ladders. And you climb these vertical ladders or these horizontal ladders, and they're between these ice walls, and they shake and they wobble. And a lot of people panic on those ladders. Uh, but just also tied into a safety line. I, I wasn't worried about this at all. Actually, I was looking forward to it. But if you look down... It goes a mile, two miles deep. You can't even see the center of the earth, basically. But And those walls that the ladders are attached to shift about a meter a day. So sometimes the ladders collapse. But you are on a safety line. And But what was happening to me at the time is my lungs started filling with fluids. It's called high-altitude pulmonary edema, and it kills a lot of people. And my brain cavity was filling with fluids, high-altitude cerebral edema. It's called HACE which also kills a lot of people. 
And I didn't show any signs at all of either of these occurring until we got on the ice field, uh, the Kumbo ice field. And I was climbing this ladder and I couldn't breathe. And I put my head down and fluids were coming out of my nose and my mouth and I couldn't breathe. I was drowning in my fluids. And then because of the fluids on my brain, I couldn't think anymore. And it got dark. It got really dark. But in reality, it wasn't dark. I lost my color vision. And everything was black and gray and brown, you know, dark gray and black and or light gray. And um, so I lost my color vision, but I just thought it was the weather. And then I didn't know why I was on a ladder. And then I didn't know where I was or which way was up the mountain, which way was down the mountain. But when I got off this one ladder, I collapsed and I went unconscious. Mm. And Andre Dorje Sherpa, the most famous Sherpa in the world, actually I have a picture of him on my wall right now I'm looking at. He uh, came up to me, and he saved a lot of lives up there, probably more than anybody. And he's yeah. climbed Everest more than anybody but one other person in the world. And he knew I was dying. And uh, he and a, a guy from New Zealand said, we got to get you down as quickly as you can. They said, what's the matter? I said, I, I can't breathe. And just saying that, I just had a little portion of my lungs that weren't filled with fluid. And I couldn't get a, the fluid just filled my lungs completely. Like over half my lungs were liquid when I got back down to base camp and um, we got to this big ice wall and they said can you repel I said of course I can repel I've repelled all my life but when I went to repel I looked at the rope and I looked at my harness I completely forgot how to repel but I saw some Sherpas that morning one of them wrapped around uh, the line around his arm four or five times and he went off the cliff and he just released one loop off of his arm one at a time. And I remembered that. I figured, well, I'll try that. I was afraid then because I was thinking if I pass out doing this, all the loops are going to come and I'll fall to my death. And um, so I got back to base camp and I got on pure oxygen. They were all afraid I was going to die. And we had to get a helicopter out that night. And uh, we couldn't because it was a bad storm, of course. And so I got out the next day, and um, the doctor said, you're very, very lucky to be alive. You only had a couple hours left up there. And, you know, but what that gives me more of appreciation for more than anything, not, you know, I'm fine. I've I've climbed mountains since then. I'm trying to ride a bicycle at 60 miles an hour now. I'm 62 years old. Since then, I've climbed higher, rode a bicycle faster, and then I went on a, 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 what was it, 28, I'm sorry, it was a 21-day canoe paddle across Canada, 750 miles. So since then, I've paddled further, climbed higher, and rode a bicycle faster than before that. But that time frame, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it or not. And it was terrible. Yeah, I have a daughter. Yeah. I had to tell her that, and she was scared to death. And, but um, it was beyond my control. And sometimes, like when you're in an airplane, yeah. and it's beyond your control, and you know if the pilot makes a mistake, you're done. You don't have a backup plan. I felt that. Yeah. I felt that I don't have a backup plan. My life's not really in my uh, control. When that happens, it makes me worry. Yeah. But you still, like you said, you have more adventures, which was leading me to my third question. They wanted to know what's your new next adventure? What are you doing next? What's your big macro goal? Well, they're not really big goals. They are my macro goals. I had a... Uh, tame it down a bit until I fully recover. I'm still not, I'm still being treated by a pulmonologist and I don't have my full memory back yet either. So um, there's 54 14,000 footers, 14,000 foot plus mountains in Colorado. 
And I like to climb those and run down. And there, and I've done it 20 times, and there's 34 I haven't done. So I want to go out there and finish those. 14,000 feet, it doesn't affect my lungs. I'm okay at that, as long as I'm not up there for a long time. I just hike up and I run down. Okay. So that's one of the goals. And the other one is I did have a bicycle built by Andy Hampson, a Tour de France rider who actually beat Lance Armstrong in one race. And he uh, helped me design and build a bike. And it's got a 90-tooth chainring. I know you're a mountain bike rider, but this has a, I had a 90-tooth chainring built in New Zealand. And that was put on the front of the bike. So it looks ridiculous. It looks like it's almost as big as the wheels are on the bike. But the math yeah. works out that if you can pedal that 90-tooth chainring, 100 RPMs, 100 revolutions per minute, I can ride at 60 miles an hour. So right now I'm only at 52 miles an hour. 52.3 miles an hour, and I'm trying to reach 60 is my goal. Those are my two goals right now. (laughs) No wonder you're not afraid of COVID-19. I mean, look at you. It's all relative, you know what I mean, what you've gone through. Yeah, the world's been through this before, and we've beaten it before, and um, it'll happen again, right? Yeah, it absolutely. So... The last question I had was, did you have a favorite mission or a mission that you thought was the most successful or one that you enjoyed? It actually was a young lady that asked this question. Oh, well, you know, there was one, and I and this is right tip of my memory right now, but there was um, an invasion. We're part of that invasion, and there was a, a boat where everybody on the boat was our enemy, and everybody on that boat was killed. And I'm not going to be graphic describing this. But everybody on the boat was killed. And we had to go on that boat and um, haul it to shore. And um, it was a summer day and it smelled, all the bodies with terrible smell and all. Anyways, we got it to shore. And I told my guys, I said, anything that looks dangerous, don't touch it. Anything that looks like intelligence, put it in this pile here. All the drugs and things, just throw overboard. And that's what we were doing. And we worked basically without sleep for about two, little over two days. Everybody was exhausted. And um, the engineer on the boat said to me, he said, and he called me Doc because I was a medic. He said, hey, Doc, would you mind going underneath the boat and just checking for any damage on the hull or the shaft or the screw? Because this was shot by some law rockets, and um, we want to know if there's any damage done underneath. And the law rocket basically can go through a tank or a building, and it's a very powerful weapon. And I said, sure, I'll go down there. I started going down the ladder. I had all my dive stuff on. And uh, this person, the master chief, he's called. He said, Doc, how do I get in touch with you if I need you to come up? I said, bang, three times on the surface. Bang, three times on the deck, and I'll surface. And he picked up what he thought was a pipe sitting right next to him, and he banged it three times. I didn't see what he had in his hand as I was going down the ladder. But what he had, unfortunately, was an unexploded law rocket round that didn't look like a law rocket round anymore because the fins had been scraped off when it hit the deck and was a dud. But we should have been blown to smithereens at that point. I was underwater for about 45 minutes or so. And when I came up, about noontime, who knows what happened to that pipe or that law rocket round? Nobody knows. But people ended up using it, banging on pipes and using it for other things. It ends up in a dumpster. Nine o'clock that night, I told my guys, go back to the tent. Let's get some sleep. 
and the dumpster was right next to the tent and some army guys came up to us and they said, hey, you guys throwing away all those bloodied enemy uniforms and all that stuff? We said, yeah, it's in the dumpster. They said, well, we're starting a war museum. We'd like to grab it. So three of the guys went to the dumpster right next to our tent. One of them stayed out and was being handed all the things that was in the dumpster. At one point, one of the guys bent over and he thought he saw a flashlight, which ended up being the law rocket round, and it went off in his face and in his chest, and he lost his eyes, his hands. There were thousands of pieces of shrapnel in him. He lost his lower leg, his fingers, his hands, and he got blown out of that dumpster. And I rushed out there right away because I thought we were being attacked, and I heard the other two yelling, medic, 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 and I've never seen anybody alive who looked more dead than this person did. And I went right to work, everything he's supposed to do, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposed. And I did everything I had to. And then he started moving and he started making sounds. And he started asking why he can't see, why he can't feel his hand, why he can't feel his leg. And I lied. I said, well, it's just been a mess. Everything's fine. You're going to be okay. And we ended up being friends there on the ground for 45 minutes. And he jokingly said, well, at least if I still have my beep, my wife will take me back. <laughs> so anyways, I got a medevac out of there, and um, and I sent a picture to the medevac pilots of a stick figure of all his injuries and all the treatment I did to him, and he flew off. Then he wrote me a letter from a hospital in Texas, and he said, thank you so much for saving my life. Um, I have a prosthetic leg, a prosthetic hand, a prosthetic eye, and I'm going to make it. Although he passed away in the helicopter, he passed away in the hospital, they revived him. He's got all that shrapnel in his oh organs. Goodness. Anyways, so that was the bad part of the story. The good part of the story was I got a call a year and a half ago from him. He said, oh, my God, I read this story. A friend of mine was reading the story, and they showed it to me. And I just read about this person whose life you saved, and that's me. I can't believe it. <laughs> We found out. I lived in Williamsburg, Virginia. He lived in Yorktown, Virginia. We're right next door to each other. We went and had Mexican restaurant uh, lunch together. And I saw him limping and his glass eye and his hands and everything. I knew it was him from his injuries. And we hugged. And we've been like brothers ever since. And, and he just invited me to his oh, wow. retirement party because he got a, he went right to work. He had to retire from the military after the accident. But he went to work for the intelligence community and just retired after uh, – 20-year great career in the intelligence field. He is a professional. His wife left him after the injury. He was remarried, has beautiful kids, beautiful wife. And um, wow. so that's my – a mission like that's my favorite because as bad as it might seem at one point, yeah. the ending yeah. is so happy. And uh, that that's what I, I love. I love things that turn around like that and you think, oh, my God, this poor guy. But then he's as happy yeah. as can be right now. That That's the type of mission I, I'd say comes full circle and you – you think it, this is the best thing that comes out of this type of work. Yeah, especially, what you say, like it was just a year and a half ago that he reached out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, that invasion was uh, in the 90s. Wow. That's incredible. Well, Don, I love your stories. I could sit here and listen to them over and over again. And they're <laughs> they're so inspirational. They really, they really are. And... Yeah, they really are. And even like with the, the book, Facing Your Fears, like I, I think even just like you said, just break it down, identify them, embracing them, and then letting go of them, you know? It, it's it's really could be helpful, especially now, you know, with what's going on. I have a, a, 
one more thing to ask you, all right? So you were talking about what you want to do, your goals and everything. Do you have, this is the last question, do you have like a daily workout that you make sure you do every single day or a meditational plan? Is there anything that you do every day? You know, I can't go to bed at night unless I know what I'm going to do for a workout the next day. It's just programmed into me, <laughs> okay, and, and I have to know. To know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. right, and it changes throughout the weeks and months and years. But right now, I get up and I do an online abdominal workout, which I love because I'm doing all these abdominal exercises I've never seen before. So I do that, <laughs> okay. and then I go right to an online leg workout. And these so are how this, long does the online ab work take you? Less less than twenty minutes. All right. Yeah. Gotcha. And then I go right to the online leg workout, which is about the same. And then I do computer work. I just work around the house. And then I go for my bike ride or a paddle. I, I have a surf ski, which is like a kayak. It's just a fast kayak. And I'll go for, because I'm doing 10 hours a week outdoors. And it has to be mountain bike riding, road riding, or kayaking. But I try to get a minimum of 10 hours a week in the outdoors. Then I come back in. Okay. And I do my work, and then my nighttime, I'll do an hour of weights. Uh, I bought a lap machine, uh, which I'm happy I bought before the virus hit, and I have it, and I just do yeah. a series of – and I love going online and learning. You know, I thought I knew a lot about exercise. I'm learning so much from uh, the, these other exercises, and, and I'm really feeling fitter now than I felt in over 10 years now because thank, thankfully that I'm home and I'm – and I'm not distracted by other things. The other thing I, I, I appreciate so much of this spare time I have, now I've got a lot of nieces and nephews and a daughter who just found out she's pregnant. Now instead of just quick text oh, wow. and things like that, now I can really have the time I should have always had to call them and wish them happy birthdays or talk to them and, and have Skype calls with them. And it's, it's, I feel closer to all of my family now because of this. So yeah. I, I know it's a terrible virus and there's a lot of bad with it, but boy, there's certainly a lot of good that comes with it too. Yeah, I agree. There, there are a lot of opportunities out there. Well, Don, is there anything that we didn't get in that you want to say before we go? This has been really fun and I really enjoyed every minute of it. Well, you know, Sandy, I, I'd like to say that um, I love your attitude. You're very optimistic and upbeat. And I just um, want to thank you for what you do for your listeners and bringing this cheerfulness and your upbeat attitude to your listeners. I think it's a great thing to do. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. And is how, how would they reach you if they want to reach you? Okay. So um, I have an email website, and it's okay. U.S. Frogman, and that's spelled U-S-F-R-O-G. M-A-N-N, like my last name, man, usfrogman.com. Cool. And um, I'm on Facebook. And uh, and if you just put Don Mann, M-A-N-N, Navy SEAL, that website pops up anyways. All right, cool. Yeah, because you have a lot of fun stuff on there. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. All right, Don. Well... This has been a pleasure. My Let's Keep It Real People, I think you can attest, Don has definitely kept it real. And you know what I'm going to say till next time. Toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.